Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So today we're talking about extended family members and just how important they are, how it helps build a community. Um, I know a lot of us probably live far away from from extended family members, but I would love to talk about how to keep in communication with them and how important it really is. So to help us understand this a lot more and help us guide us into how to stay in communication is Dr. Marissa Holst, and she is a assistant professor of psychology in the University of Minnesota. Um, How are you going today, Marissa? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you. And I'm really glad that we finally got to do this. It's the second time round that we've tried. Yeah, (laughs) second attempt. Yes. And I I love that we're able to do this today. Um, So other than sort of... um, assistant professor and all the accomplishments that you have done. Can you talk a bit more about what you are, how you got into talking about this? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I think I've been asking the question, you know, what what is a family since I was a child? Uh, I was adopted as a child. So um, that sort of spurred the the sort of start of my interest within studying families and extended families, because I remember looking around as a kid and recognizing that my family looked a little bit different than other people's families did. Um, And I, you know, I was interested in what those lines were and if those lines were like hard lines or hard boundaries and sort of who who was responsible for the creation of those boundaries or um, sort of defining those things. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it started really when I was a child. Wow, that's, that's a really interesting way of sort of getting into the field and sort of getting into mm-hmm. studying what you're doing and taking it from a passion project into a career as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Uh, so before we get started and before we start talking about the topic, we love to start with a little icebreaker, sort of okay. to get to know you a little bit more. Um, so when I say these phrases or whatever, could just say whatever comes to mind or the first thing that you can think of. All right. Okay. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> pressure at all. <laughs> um, so the first one is your favorite book. Oof. You're asking a professor what her favorite book is. <laughs> That's tough. Um, I would say, I guess the book that I own the most copies of what it's, is called Wild Ember, uh, Poems of Rebellion by Nikita Gill. Um, I buy it for every uh, graduating um, girl in my family, um, graduating from high school, uh, college, whatever it may be. Um, and they just, it's a, filled with feminist poems and I just really like, like the style. Well, I love that you're passing on some interests of yours, something that you love onto the family members. And I think that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is your favorite movie. Hands down, The Lord of the Rings. I love okay. The Lord of the Rings. I've loved, um, I've loved the films since they came out. Um, so yeah, they're kind of my comfort. I go back to them every time. 
Oh, I can definitely relate to that. That is, um, especially coming from New Zealand as well. It's no definitely kidding, like, yeah. A, yeah, I love, I can't wait to one day go and see the set where it was filmed. Yes. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I know. I'm so jealous of the family members that live there at the moment. <laughs> no kidding. So next up is your favorite podcast. So I have a couple. Um, I really like Unlocking Us by Brene Brown. I, obviously, she's an inspiration. Uh, her work is really interesting. She brings on a lot of interesting guests. I also like Armchair Expert uh, with Dax Shepard. Um, same kind of thing. He has a lot of interesting guests. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. I think that's the like the obviously the root of being a professor in some ways. Uh, so I like mm-hmm. getting to hear about um, different different areas of science. Wow, I love I love Brene Brown. I think she's a most common sort of inspiration to a lot of the guests that come onto the show. But I've started loving her as well. It's like I've yes. started reading, I've started reading one of her books. I forgot the name of it at the moment, but um, okay. but it's been so. I started it and I cannot put it down. It's um, mm-hmm. one of those ones where it's not an easy read, but it's something that I'm mm-hmm. highlighting as I'm going along. Oh, constantly. Yeah. I listen to them and then like highlight as I'm listening. It's very, very nerdy, but yes, yeah. I love her. <laughs> Basically any, anything that she writes, I will read. Okay. She's got a number one fan right here then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she does. The next one is a famous role model of yours. Fictional or real? Need some clarification there. Oh, it can be either, whatever, whichever one. Well, I guess I I kind of feel like I have to say Brene Brown now because we made such a (laughs) such a plug there. But if I had to go fictional, I I think I'll go with Ted Lasso. Oh, okay. I love Ted Lasso. I think he's I think he's a great role model, (laughs) even if he's fictional. Yes, no, fictional characters are still really um, like leader, leaderish in a way. And it's, yeah, they're incredible. I love Ted Lasso as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as I a love psychologist, I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, so, last one is a favorite course of yours that you've completed. Ooh, I have been out of, out of like the seat in the classroom for a while. Um, I did though, last spring, I sat in on a colleague's course on fantasy writing. I was just writing, it's an English course. I can't remember the designator, but I, I enjoyed it so much. Just sort of the the sort of take on, um, approach to fantasy writing, um, fantasy fiction, I should say. Um, so yeah, that was the last course I, I think I have sat in on and yeah, it was a joy. Well, I love, I love little courses where it's not like exactly what you want to study, but it's just a little passion sort of course yeah. that you just enter in. Yeah, I, I always do that. Um, I crash some of my friends' lectures sometimes. and I love that. I'll always let a student in that wants to sit in. I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm sure there's rules about it, but I don't mind. No, I don't mind either. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about extended families and Mm -hmm. just their importance and how to bridge a gap between them. Um, To start off with, we love to hear everyone's definition of this particular ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that everyone's is very different. So I would love to know what your definition of family is. Ooh, I love this question. I really love this question. I start out, I teach a course on families. Um, I start out my course this way with this particular question. 
Because I think it really is a context specific question. Everybody's going to answer this differently. Uh, for me and how I define it for my classes, I tend to keep it pretty broad. Um, but I tend to say that groups of related people that are bound by connections that are either biological, legal, or emotional, um, that can be any, all of those things. Um, generally, they're going to be people uh, who would also define you as family. So that is sort of a bi-directional relationship. Um, but that's typically how I define it in the classroom. Um, it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be legal. It doesn't have to be biological. Um, but it's sort of people that we feel emotionally connected to. I like to keep that answer really broad. No, I, I do as well. It's very, family is a very touch and go thing, especially when sort of discussing, trying to define, because like you said, blood does not really make family and you can have an emotional connection. So what would you differentiate between a friend and family? I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I might pose an opposing question, which would be like, why do we need to differentiate? Because I think in a lot of ways, like we can have friends who feel like family who are families. And Mm -hmm. um, I think if we try to sort of, I mean, because like when we look at how we define family within the literature, right? Like the broader Mm -hmm. scientific literature does like to keep things pretty tight with that, like mother, father, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, you know, that's the family. But when we look at communities of color, um, indigenous communities, quite often there aren't those strict boundaries around who's in and who's not. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I tend to, I tend to lean in that direction, I guess I would say. Okay, I love that you sort of added the different cultures as well, because I know a lot of indigenous, they have uh, like the community is a family. And that's absolutely that's Mm -hmm. a big part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you think that the position a family holds in today's society is similar to what it used to be or has it changed in some way? I also really love this question because I feel (laughs) like some people think it's a controversial question. Right. And I don't feel like. It is. I think that there are, I think media likes to tell us that like the focus on family has shifted. I think capitalism has pushed that quite a bit. But I think when you sit down with people in communities um, and and you ask them about their relationships with their family, they're going to, I mean, or about just relationships that they value. Uh, and what they, and where they fit in their lives, they're going to tell you that like that, that has not changed for them over the years. I think especially coming out of the pandemic, um, I just really think that people like that, that definition or what families mean to individuals hasn't really changed. I do think that um, capitalism and certain, like I know within American culture, like we've, we've tried to make this look like it needs to look one certain way. And I just, but I think on like a very individual level, I don't think that it's changed for people. Mm-hmm. Do you think it still holds the same importance as well? Or has that sort of, like, I know that when you think of family, I know now we say it's pretty much anyone you feel connection to. But Mm -hmm. when you think about the definition of family a while ago, and also some people growing up, they see it as just being a four unit, just being people who are blood related. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, does it still hold the same importance or has it definitely sort of shifted? I don't think that it has become less important, right? Mm -hmm. I think that what, what it's look, what it looks like has shifted a little bit. And I think that you see people who have more traditional values push back against the sort of diversification of the family structure. But I don't think that 
for the people who are living in a given unit with a given set of people that it has become less important. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about extended family members. And while we define family, how would you define extended family? Well, I guess I gotta. I guess I'll throw back a little bit to what I said earlier, which is like traditionally in the literature, quite often, like how that's defined is you know mother, father, brother, sister, siblings, you know, fill in the blank, aunt, yeah. uncle, grandma, grandpa, that type of thing. But like I've said, within um, that that sort of literature that's looked at specifically, like the African American or Black experience in terms of family, that when you look at that qualitative data. Um, a lot of extended family members don't necessarily have biological ties to families. So it can be um, uh, a friend of a, a friend of an aunt or uh, and that person is considered an aunt as well, or uh, a religious leader within the community that has some type of significance. Those people are often also considered family members. So I think when it comes to defining what extended family is, I think it's kind of a context specific question or it can be. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to like the whole label, for example, you say aunt, uncle, blood related Mm -hmm. or not, when you talk Mm -hmm. about cousins as well, is the label sort of what makes it extended family? I suppose so. Yeah, I I should have mentioned cousins too, because those are quite often listed within that extended family kind of conversation for sure. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think that can you repeat your first question or that question again? I lost my train of thought here. No, that's okay. Um, <laughs> so when I talk about like cousins and the label of mm-hmm. what extended families are, would they still mm-hmm. be considered extended family? Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. It's often considered the case in the literature as well. Um, we don't know as much about cousin relationships as we do about mm-hmm. other relationships sort of interdynamically within the family system. Um, but they're definitely considered would be or could be considered extended family relationships. Okay. So for example, like who would you be sending as extended family members? Would it be friend? Could it family? You say family is sort of like could be friends could turn into family. Mm-hmm. How could they, could they also be extended, extended family members, not just um, like, the whole retrospect of what you think extended family is? I think that if I'm understanding your question correctly, like if you're asking how like I define those things, if I, you know, in the work that I do or the work that I have done, Mm -hmm. typically I like to let participants define who those people are for themselves. So if you're collecting qualitative data, right, you're asking them who those people are, right? Um, And who those sources of support are. And so I kind of let... I let participants lead me in that sense into, you know, showing me who those people are and how they fit within how they're defining extended family. One of the questions I wrote or I've asked participants um, within qualitative work is to define what they feel like extended family is. And then I think you can glean a little bit more about how people define it, because I don't think the sort of really structured boundaries around who who is who or what who qualifies as what really matters so much as what people are gleaning from those relationships like what are they pulling from those relationships and what do those relationships mean to them Mm -hmm. and when you're talking about relationships you're talking about sort of in being in communication Mm why do we think it's important for people to be engaged with extended family members? 
Ooh, this is another good one. You got a lot of good ones on this list. <laughs> I think that extended family relationships in a lot of ways um, are a really fertile ground for education, uh, for learning, learning about culture, learning about how I, you know, I teach at a predominantly indigenous school here. Uh, University of Minnesota Morris has a, a lot of indigenous uh, students on campus. And this is something that we hear students talk about a lot, what they value a lot, the ability to go back to the elders in their family and to learn about um, their culture and their, their sort of traditions and rituals. Um, and so I think that extended families or extended family members are really a, like a very fertile ground for the passage of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing I would say about that is that um, learning about, I was talk, actually just talking to my students about this today. We were talking about building multicultural competency. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to learn about where you came from. Um, what, what your background is about your ancestors and sort of what brought them and to where they are today. Um, and so extended family helps, helps bridge some of that, you know, helping us know who we are and like where we fit in the world. Um, they also serve a perfect purpose, excuse me, in the present in terms of helping us navigate, um, relationships with our immediate family. We know that relationships between mothers and their daughters are, are pretty conflictual relationships, albeit very close, but often grandmothers, grandfathers can sort of help facilitate aunts, uncles, you know, can help facilitate or, or mediate some of that conflict, which I think is a really beautiful thing. So um, in terms of like, how to, you know, like how, what do they supply us with? It's, I, I mean, I could go on for days. Hmm. I think, yeah, for example, like, I, it's always been my, me, my sister, my dad and, and my mom. And it's yeah. always, we've moved around quite a bit and moved away from extended families. And I've definitely seen the relationship between both sides of the family being very distant from us because we've been separated. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely see when you're talking yeah. about the passing down of knowledge, knowledge um, yeah. it was, it's such a different relationship with what we learn and what my cousins learn, for example, yeah. and how they learn to be. Um, so why, why is that such a big difference when you move away? Like it's still like, you're still family, you're still <laughs> maintaining a relationship, but it's just very different. Yeah. I think that's such a human question and a very emotional one when you think about it. Cause it's like, mm -hmm. I mean, for, for the, for the person who's far away from those people, you're sort of, you know, forced to watch or look at pictures or hear about this really close relationship. And I think humans really crave connection, um, in a lot of ways. And so I think it's, it's, that's why it can feel difficult, right? It's like, you're watching someone else have this relationship that you, you really value that you really want a part of. And it, it can't happen because of the, the sort of, um, the roadblocks in place that, you know, that space puts in our way in a lot of ways. I know I feel that way. I have, I live, uh, like four or five hours away from my nephews and my sister. And like, I get to, I get tons of videos and pictures of all the cute things that they're doing. And then, you know, on this end, like, yes, I get to engage with them and it's fun, but it's like, you're also a little bit like, Oh, this is, this is a little sad that I don't get to, to have to play the role that I would like to play in their mm -hmm. lives sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so other than that, 
What are some other sort of common challenges in sort of navigating the relationships with extended family? Ooh, um, this is a broad question because it can look like a lot of different things, right? Like families are complicated things. Um, there's, there's years and years of, of things that have happened, of relationship dynamics that impact how we engage with one another. Um, so I think some of that stuff can be a challenge in navigating those relationships. Um, if say mom has a relationship with grandma that looks a certain way that in some ways can, can affect the relationship that a granddaughter or a grandson has with their grandmother. Um, so that sort of interpersonal conflict in some ways can be a challenge. Um, like we talked a little bit about distance, distance obviously can be a challenge when sort of navigating or trying to maintain close relationships. Um, I would say like socioeconomic status is a factor there as well. Like if, if it's, um, likely that someone has the means to travel back and forth to visit those people and someone doesn't right? like that can impact, um, that you have cultural pieces, there, generational pieces there, um, in terms of, of, uh, roadblocks that, uh, individuals can run into for sure. There's lots of things. So having that, for example, that last one you mentioned with like the, just the, the small little roadblock of also being very different from mm-hmm. your, the cousins and extended family, mm-hmm. how, why has that affected sort of the relationship that you have with extended family members so, so intensely? That generational piece? Is that what you're yeah. asking about? Um, yeah. that's, that's, I actually had the same question. I uh, collected some data when I was working on my dissertation. A few It was post-2016, so right after uh, Trump had gotten elected here in this country. And I had heard a lot of, um, a lot of students echoing some really interesting things, some really like really dissonance around these people that they loved a lot. And, um, but like not seeing eye to eye with that person anymore. Um, and I've seen, I continue to see students and young people experiencing some of that. And I think that generational bit, um, that educational bit really feeds into some of that. But I think what I'm hearing from those participants and from the students in my classroom is like, they really love these people, but they're really not sure how to navigate those relationships anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but I guess what I get from that is just how, how impactful those relationships remain, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about sandwich generation and its sort of relation to extended family relationships? Ooh, that's another one. Uh, So just to clarify, right, sandwich generations uh, generally refers to um, humans who are um, sort of dead in the middle middle of taking care of their own kids and uh, possibly caring for aging adults in their families. Um, typically, these uh, are women um, who are middle age is typically who, who falls within that sandwich generation. And that's sort of a hotbed for conflict in a lot of different ways, because when we're caring for people, there's a lot of stress and things that sort of and, and just sort of comp- uh, stress and unforeseen consequences that, uh, that come out of that. Right. So uh, the, the financial, the financial concerns that come out of caring for someone, um, mm-hmm. the, the sort of interpersonal, 
conflicts that can come out of caring for someone, especially if that person is aging and experiencing issues with memory um, or the loss of um, autonomy in some way. Um, and so you have conflict that can pop up between the person, like the, the person who's doing the caring and um, the person who's being cared for. Um, typically those people who are providing care are women. Um, and so you have sort of the added stress of also being a woman in the world today, right? On top of some yeah. of that. Um, and then uh, conflict between that individual, that helper and their siblings their their parents depending on who they're caring for because are they are they helping are they helping her her care for this person um uh, if they're not if she's sort of out here on her own doing that like what sort of resentment resentments does that build what sort of conflict comes out of that um so sandwich generation stuff is really interesting and we're, we're kind of starting to see um some interesting data pop out with regard to the sort of long-term emotional impact um, mm. that, that that can have on particularly women. Yeah, I think we've spoken about sort of caregiving on the show in previous episodes and it's intense just dealing with the yep. finance, finance part of it. Very expensive, it's, yeah. Yeah, especially from working, you being the caregiver having to work and also while taking care of yep. um, taking care of the family members but also taking care of kids and balancing that. And mm -hmm. that that generation sort of really faces a lot of emotional resentment towards both either mm -hmm. sides, I would assume yes. so at least. Yes, yes, absolutely. And resentment in a lot of ways, and we can look at, um, you know, the work of, you know, John Gottman and a lot of other famous psychologists that look at um, sort of what resentment can do to the relationships that we're in. And resentment is really uh, the foundation of a lot of relationships that fall apart. Um, mm -hmm. Those sort of those those sort of feelings that we keep to ourselves and they just sort of build up and build up and build up. They can be really damaging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, when talking about a little bit more about the sandwich generation and just exactly what they have to go with. Mm -hmm. um, why is there such a reliance on their part to play in the whole sort of family member relationship? Why there is such a reliance? I think that if you're talking about, I mean, some of it comes back to shifts in cultural narratives on who's responsible for care, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I can speak to what goes on here in the U.S., right? Like um, there's been a shift away from families being responsible for care. And so a lot of our aging adults end up in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, and they're not engaging so much um, with their family uh, as they have in the past. But um, that's more of a reality for wealthy white Americans. But there's when it comes to communities of color here, like a lot of uh, care for aging adults is still being taken care of by families. And that sort of expectation, right, of ensuring that this this elder of your family that has a ton of respect and really should be respected, right, is, is taken care of to the degree that they feel and the family feels like they should be taken care of is, is a, is a hefty weight to, to bear. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So now we're going to talk about a little bit more about the strategies that individuals can sort of imp, um, apply in order to maintain the relationship. Okay. Yeah. What kind of strategies can be employed to sort of bridge a gap between family members who live far away and while also maintaining a strong connection? So I think this goes, this goes both directions. So it's the things that, you know, I need to do and it's the things that my family needs to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think that, you know, our technology in a lot of ways has evolved enough to be a big help for us. Right. You know, you have things like FaceTime and Zoom and those and connecting with family members over those things that live great distances is a fantastic tool. Like I've said before, we saw this come out of the pandemic. It really did serve to keep people together. Um, I think though, simply, you know, picking up the phone and calling isn't always enough, right? Because it goes back to what creates, what's at the heart of a meaningful connection. And that uh, often are things like, or that is, I should say, often things like vulnerability, honesty, a willingness to communicate, a willingness to show up. And both per- both parties have to have to come into those uh, conversations with some of that. Um, I think, and so that's I'm speaking from you know from the sort of aspect of adults when it comes mm-hmm. to like making sure that you're connecting with little kids. Like my uh, my youngest nephew is he just turned one. So like FaceTime is really, it's, it's cool for like five minutes and then it's not cool anymore. So for, uh, in in the case of smaller kids, I also have a twin niece and nephew who are five. So they're a little older, but we don't see them as often. And so what my sister-in-law and then what my sister does is like, uh, they have conversations at home about who I am and like what my role is and when I'm coming to see them next, like you, you as a parent then take on some of that responsibility of like creating this, the vision of who this person is for your child. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't, and that, that goes both ways, right? Like that's me showing up for them. And that's also my, my, my sister-in-law, my sister, whoever that is for you, you know, facilitating that as well. Mm How, for example, sort of in a scenario of where the, parent generation is sort of not in close communication with the extended family members. How does that sort of affect the kids in a sense? So if you have adults that don't have a close relationship, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes. Ooh, ooh, that can be like a really sad question, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because that child really has no concept of like what what the rea- what the reality of the situation is. So they are going to be getting um, probably one side of the story. Um, and that I think we can all admit just kind of sucks because sometimes mm-hmm. that's maybe not the narrative that you feel like is the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some ways there needs to be a little bit of acceptance around like, you know, right now I may not have the opportunity to foster this relationship because this child is really small, mm-hmm. but maybe somewhere down the line, um, I'll have the opportunity to grab a coffee or grab a tea um, with this child when they're an adult. 
and maybe we'll have the opportunity to build something then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow when you, you know, you're looking you're on the outside looking in and saying like, I really love this child and I really want to, you know, play a part in their life. Um, but I think some of it is the acceptance of like, you know, showing up where you can, you know, if it's the sending of birthday cards, if it's the short, you know, video messages, or if there's a way, you know, for you to be at a, a larger gathering that they're at. Um, but some of it is the acceptance of like, if this is, if this connection is meant to happen, um, maybe I'll get a shot, you know, somewhere down the, somewhere down along the line. Yeah. I think one of the biggest sort of looks into sort of the family member relationship for me, at least is the series called Gilmore Girls. Yes. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) With how like Rory is just in the stuck in the middle between either the grandparents mm-hmm. or her mom. Mm-hmm. And it's such a big look into how people see the truth very differently. People see yep. their recollection of the life story very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's amazing. I, love, I love those media representations, right? Because mm-hmm. like that's honesty. Like I think so often we kind of steer away from this idea that like, conflict exists in families like we tend to have this um this sort of notion that like if conflict exists in a family unit that there's like something wrong with that right mm-hmm. um but like when you see when you use that feel more girls reference or like really, there's a lot like parenthood or modern family or um oh man the one with mandy moore it was on nbc for a long time but what what those what I like about those representations is you get to see the reality of what lots of people deal with on a daily basis when when managing their families when trying to connect with their families like in reality conflict is 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 not a bad word um, it's it's a reality of being human mm-hmm. and why do you think it's so sort of a not spoken about topic of why conflict exists in family members. I think because conflict makes people uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know, like conflict means that, you know, something happened that I have to address that I don't like and doesn't make me feel good. And on a basic human level, we don't like that very much. We don't like things that don't make us feel good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a little better at curbing some of it than animals, but like other animals, I should say, but like, we don't like that. We don't like having to balance the fact that it is not one way or the other, that there's gray space in the middle. Um, Humans are not very good at that. Mm -hmm. And now how can sort of family members work together in order to navigate challenges and maintain a healthy relationship with each other? I think, I, I guess I'll reiterate the piece on conflict, you know, recognizing that conflict is, not a bad thing, you know, Mm -hmm. like you're going to run into things. It's inevitable. Like I tell my students this all the time, like, I'm sorry, like adversity is just, it's going to happen. And like, we have to recognize like, so what we need to focus on then is like, how, what is the most, what is the most beneficial way to approach that adversity? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think a lot of that starts with, and you as an individual, right? So like uh, when you are trying to navigate an issue with a grandma, grandpa, uncle, whoever that, whoever that person is for you, like 
making sure that you're approaching that um, with honesty, with a willingness to communicate, um, making sure that you're listening, um, that you're listening em empathetically um, and not just listening to speak back, you know, like that mm -hmm. you are, that you're engaged. And I think a lot of that starts on an, because we can't control what other people do. Like, I know that that's difficult to hear. I know mm -hmm. it's difficult for me to remember sometimes, but like, we don't have any control. Like I don't have any control over how you choose to respond to the answers to my question. I do have control over my own behavior. And so mm -hmm. when it comes to navigating some of these challenges, a lot of it is like, it's, it's, it's really working on how I, how you choose to respond. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, like seeing a lot of how different some of my friends and their families work, a lot of them have a lot of conflict because of their own ego as well. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Like no one wants to be the first one to no, apologize. Absolutely <laughs> not. Why? Because it makes us uncomfortable. And it also means that we have to accept that, Hey, maybe I did something that wasn't so great too. Yeah. Yeah, and nobody exactly. wants to do that. Yeah. Why do you think that sort of puts like, why do you think that's such a big strain on how we respond to family members so like why is that such a big deal yeah uh, i think when it comes to families and i think it does happen in to some degree with friendships long-term friendships as well is you have like years and years and years of baggage that goes that, that kind of goes along with relationships that have lasted a long time mm -hmm. um and you know you have you have i don't want to say I'll use the word trauma in this instance, because in some cases, that's what that is. You have scars um, mm -hmm. from instances um, from different exchanges with family members um, that are going to, to, to sort of rip open in, in different situations, right? Um, you get sort of triggered in some way. Um, and so like when we are sort of forced to, to maybe um, have to come into contact with that again, um, to, to clear up another issue. I, I, we just don't like, I mean, humans just don't like to be uh, that type of uncomfortable mm -hmm. to be that, to be, to feel vulnerable, like true vulnerability. Um, we really, really struggle with. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting when you talk about long-term relationships, because you feel a lot of like, like all the baggage that you have and, but somehow mm -hmm we still stay in communication with them and we still like f for extended family members for like aunts and uncles how does that sort of put a strain on their conflict especially if you don't see them often, often. enough to be able yeah i think it depends on that given family and how they approach how they approach conflict you know there are mm -hmm. some families that are more open to engaging you know um with you know, difficult stuff. Um, and then there are families that are not, and for families that they're, you know, that they're not addressing the sort of elephant in the room, so to speak, that's going to continue. That elephant isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I grew up in a family that didn't really have an issue with, um, confronting things that they didn't like with one another. Um, and I value, I value that experience because I feel like it's made me better in the relationships that I have or the relationships that I, you know, are important to me and that I foster. Um, and I will say that my, the relationships that I have that, you know, you work through some of that conflict or you're willing to, to sort of be like, step up to the plate and say like, I screwed up. 
I'm so sorry, but I'm here. Like, how can we work this out? Those relationships are healthier than the ones where like, you just sort of let it ride. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's, I mean, I think that's what you're asking, but. Yes, no, that that definitely adds (laughs) to that. Because I'm, I'm definitely the same in the way that I grew up. Like my family, we, we're not afraid to express how we felt mm-hmm. at that exact at that exact moment. It, nothing was sort of shoved under the rug and not spoken about. And um, I'm really glad that's the way it is. I think the way it happened could the timing of it. Sometimes mm-hmm. at two a.m., I don't really need to be <laughs> having no. a deep discussion. Yeah. yeah, I get it for sure. But yeah, I definitely agree with you in the way that I would rather it all be spoken and put out in the open than it just sort of builds up over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but like talking about that, what kind of boundaries can be set for like family members, especially extended family members who sort of really love to, I don't mm-hmm. want to say gossip, but sort of in, mm-hmm. they just be those people that judge you really quickly. I wondered... I was, I was going to mention, I was going to somehow work boundaries in. So I'm really glad that you brought it up because <laughs> uh, boundaries are so important. Remembering that uh, boundaries are obviously the lines that define what behaviors are acceptable to us, right? Like mm-hmm. basically communicating like, this is what I will accept from you, mm-hmm. right? Um, boundaries, so important. My uh, students hear about them at nauseum in my classroom. I'm always just like, hey, you know, when we're talking about human relationships, boundaries are, are super important. And I think that kind of, you know, when you're trying to decide when to employ them, right, or how to employ them, that also is a really personal question, right? It's like, it's, it's what am I willing to accept? And then um, if that person can't accept those things, what does that mean? Um, yep. And I think it's one thing to talk about setting the boundary, That I think is an easy conversation. I think the more difficult conversation is when somebody pushes against your boundaries and they don't like them. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to sort of contend with what what you do with that. Um, And I think that when it comes to, you know, say you have like a grandparent or an aunt um, or, you know, someone in your family that like doesn't respect those boundaries. I think that the, the question you need to ask yourself is like, is this healthy for me? Like, is it healthy for me to continue to have this person not respect my boundaries and to push up against them and to not hear what I'm saying? And then if your answer is no, then, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that that person gets less access? Does that mean that that person is no longer in your life? Does that mean, you know, what does that mean? Um, Mm -hmm. That's, I guess, what it makes me think of. Yeah. And I think it's it's very interesting because especially when it comes to the grandparent and grandchild relationship, there is mm-hmm. always a huge conflict and to what you're supposed to talk about and what you're not supposed to mm-hmm. talk about. Like, for example, um, growing up, like talking with my grandparents it used to be always on a very superficial level and sometimes still is just because of the things that the questions that they ask, the things that they sort of comment on. Um, and that set me growing up to always set a boundary as to what I tell them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, like they mentioned my weight sometimes, like in like that yeah. kind of <laughs> Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. oh, why are you still single at this age? <laughs> yeah. And it's Where's your partner? Yeah. Exactly. So it set me to always I know that that's them and I know that's how mm-hmm. they are. And it's I can't like you said earlier, I, you can't mm-hmm. change you can't change yeah. them. So that's really set me up. But I also regret having a distant relationship with them at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the first thing what you're saying makes me think about is like how important it is to validate that, like to validate the fact that like you love these people, what they say makes you uncomfortable sometimes. And that sucks. Mm -hmm. Like that sucks. And that's, I think remembering, like you can take that time to say like, Hey, this just sucks. Like I, it just sucks. And like, you can, you, there's, there's a, there's an element of mourning to that, to, to, to grief in some ways of saying like the morning of the relationship that, um, you wanted to have or what, what you thought it should be, I guess, like to take a little bit of time to say like, God, this sucks that this is not the way I want it to be. And that it's mm-hmm. like, it's not my fault. It's not inherently their fault. It's just sort of like, this is the situation that we're in. Um, I think it's okay to say, to start there and just, you know, take the time that you need. Cause I think so often we push past that part. Cause you're like, well, you want to, you want to give them credit or you want to, you, you want to move on to emotion, to an emotion that doesn't feel so bad, but being mm-hmm. to sit with that, just to sit with that, I think is a, is a good place to start. Okay. Yeah. I think like, I would love to, especially as they're getting older, like having that relationship with them yeah. to me is really important. Important for sure. Um, they recently came over to visit and I was just like, okay, how much do I want to tell? Because like, when they're staying with you, it's mm-hmm. also that like the oh, boundaries are very yeah. pushed. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So yeah, I think like um, I would have loved to tell them more about what I'm interested in and mm-hmm especially with their idea of me being a teacher and earning money and mm-hmm. all that stuff and it not being their view of how they saw me yep. is also trying to balance. That makes me think of something too. Um, you know, I ha- I've had older family members in my life too, where like I've, I've not felt great about the exchanges that I've had with them and they end up kind of being the same. So mm-hmm. there's been a couple times where I have approached those conversations sort of radically different and like, ask them questions that they maybe didn't expect from me. And it changes the vibe of that conversation. So saying something to the, to the effect of like, you know, asking them about what it was like growing up, you know, my family grew up in, you know, rural Minnesota, very, very poor. So like asking my grandma what it was like to grow up in the Valley that she grew up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And we like to talk about ourselves in a lot of ways. Right. And so like you can kind of shift and change the the nature of a conversation and then all of a sudden like the um the, that connection within that relationship feels a little bit different because like you have sidetracked away from the things that are more superficial i yes. guess um so this perfectly leads into the next <laughs> section of our okay. of our show as to what's your practice to improve relationships with extended family members into a very healthy sort of sense? Ooh, this is, um, I think this, this is a great question. Um, I think so often it's not asked, you know, the, the sort of question of like, 
how do I make sure that these relationships remain healthy instead of mm-hmm. like, how do I just sustain this? Or like, how do I just get through this Christmas dinner or whatever <laughs> it is that you celebrate, right? And you're like stuck in this room with people asking you where your you know partner is or your kids or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more, it's, you know, it's been lately so much more about sustaining and not about like, how do I, how do I create something that that's healthy? Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of have to nod back to what I said earlier about like making sure that you understand that like you're not in control of anybody else's behavior, but what are we in control of? We're in control of our own behavior. So when it comes to, if you want healthy relationships in your life, I think that what's really important is that you, you work on yourself, um, whether that be a mindfulness practice, a spiritual practice, um, whether that's therapy, there's a lot of different types of therapy. If one doesn't work for you, there's bound to be one that does somewhere out there because in therapy, like what, what skills are we learning? Right. We're learning about self-awareness. We're learning about accountability. We're learning about, um, you know, the things that we do in relationships that are maybe, sabotaging us or damaging, damaging to us. And so I really have to come back to that. Like you gotta, you gotta figure out you, um, in order to maintain healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the challenges that you have faced when sort of putting this practice into place? Ooh, (laughs) challenges. Um, I think it's effort. I mean, I think when it comes to challenges, I mean, it's like, it's so easy to talk about like, you know, going to therapy or like building self-awareness, right? Like you're like, oh yeah, check that off the list. That's, that's easy (laughs) enough. But like when you really kind of roll up your sleeves and you dig into, into sort of what is being, uh, you know, what you need to do for, to make yourself the best version of yourself, it's not an easy practice at all. Like you're coming Mm -hmm. to terms with the version of you that you maybe don't like as much or you're not familiar with. And that's not a comfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody likes that, you know, that particular piece. And so I think if there's any, if there's challenge, it's that it's the sort of the confrontation of like, there are things that, that I need to work on in order to be a better partner, a better friend, a better grandchild, a better daughter, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And how do you find that this practice has impacted or does impact your family life as well as your sort of overall understanding of life? Uh, love this question. Uh, I feel like I've said that for like every question, but that's like (laughs) the nerd in me a little bit. I think that, and I tell my students this often, I actually told them this particular, um, we actually asked this question in, uh, in class last fall. But I think that when you are, you're working on self-awareness, you're, you're building a mindfulness practice, whatever that is, those are good things. They're mm-hmm. good for you as an individual. They make you a better person. They make you a better community member. They make you a better colleague. They make you all around a happier, healthier person. And mm-hmm. so like, I just really don't see the downside in that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what other practice do you sort of recommend that can sort of either go with the practice or mm-hmm. sort of improve, improve it? I think one of the other things that I like to, to push pretty hard is the practice of empathetic listening. 
Um, so quite often that is, uh, keeping your mouth shut when someone else is, is telling you something, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's keeping your mouth shut. It's, you're really listening for content. Um, you are asking clarifying questions. You're, you're asking things like, how can I show up for you? You know, like, what do you need? It's, it's, it's asking the question or the clarifying piece of like, what I'm hearing you say is this, am I correct or am I not correct? So I really think that like that empathetic listening thing is, is so that's another practice that I think is very, very difficult, especially when you, but so important, especially when you're in those, those relationships that we've talked about already that are like conflictual and maybe <laughs> you're elevated and that other person is elevated because something has happened um, to actually sit down and be mindful about listening to them empathetically is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's another practice that I think is pretty important is being, yeah. is being a good listener. No, I definitely think so. Cause especially when you have a conflict and you know your side, but you don't know theirs, mm-hmm. you're very quick to pick up, pick on one thing that they say and you think about what you're going to say next and sort of really listen to like exactly their whole side of the story. So absolutely, it turns into an interview very quickly where you're just like, you're you're waiting. Like for me, I'm waiting until I pick up one thing that you say that I can sort of dive into and it easily becomes that in relationships. Yeah. And I mean, like in a lot of ways that kind of starts the downward spiral of a conversation, because if you're not listening to one another, you're definitely not hearing one another. And so there's not you're not putting the blocks or the pieces back together of a relationship when you are if you can't even tell, you know, another person what that person is is expressing that they're upset about. Yes. No, exactly. Um, so now we're going into audience questions. We do have quite a few. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are a lot of people trying to understand this as well. <laughs> that's, that's fine. All right. Let's see what we got. What you got? So the first one is how would you define healthy relationships in an extended family situation? Healthy relationships. I think healthy relationships can look I mean, it kind of comes back to, to like, what do you value within a given relationship? Um, uh, but I think that healthy relationships make us better in some ways, right? Like that you leave that experience feeling like your cup is a little fuller, um, that your load is a little lighter. Um, it looks like knowing that that person can and will show up for you in times of need, right? Um, it's knowing that you can trust that person, um, that they accept you in any, in any format that you present to them. Um, I think those types of things make for really healthy relationships, um, healthy relationships. I mean, if I haven't said it 8 million times already have great communication, um, they have a lot of honesty, they have a lot of vulnerability, um, and they have a lot of openness. Okay, that's a perfect answer. I love <laughs> healthy relationships is such a strange concept. It's such a new mm-hmm. concept for so many people. Yeah. So like, when you're talking about healthy relationships, it leads me to think of like friendships and mm-hmm. um, romantic relationships. But you don't think of familial relationships mm-hmm. as easily. 
No, which is so funny because we spend so much time in familial relationships. But what we see on social media and in media is really a focus on romantic relationships and particularly in friendships and particularly on the negative aspects of those things. Um, we tend to not with familial. And that's, I think, very interesting because I find those relationships more interesting. Mm -hmm. The next question is, are there certain situations or even dynamics that make maintaining relationships with extended family members particularly challenging? Yeah. Short answer, yes. I mean, or I would say, I would take it a step further, and maybe this is what they're asking, but challenging or like not beneficial, or like maybe I need a hard out, right? So, like, if you have someone who is actively doing you harm, uh, physically, emotionally, um, if you have someone who, um, is not making, not willing to make the, the life changes they need to make, uh, in order for them to be healthy and for them, for you to be healthy. So in the case, in some cases, um, the, in the case of like, say an addict, um, mm -hmm. those cases would be not, I'm not saying that's a hard out. I'm just saying that like, there are times when, um, when those relationships can be particularly challenging or right. Um, mm -hmm. you need to maybe not, maybe not have those people in your life anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next one is how can you sort of, Oh no, sorry. How can I maintain a relationship with my extended family and go to events that like familial events, mm -hmm. if they're, if my parents aren't a part of it? This makes me sad. Like, just first of all, I just want to validate, like, I'm hearing a lot of like emotion in that of like loss. Right. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so sorry. That's your experience. Right. First off the bat. Um, my, my, my follow-up question B is like, is there someone else in your family, an aunt or a cousin that maybe you still talk to that you can, you know, have talk to them about like, would it be cool if I just showed up, even if my parents didn't show up, like to ask some of those questions and sort of use as, as a way to, uh, I don't know, check the temperature of whether or not that is, that's something that would be comfortable for both you and uh, the other people at, uh, at the familial event. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah. It sounded, um, very emotional as well when just mm -hmm. reading through that. Yeah, for sure. And I think like it, we've said it a couple times already, in the last hour that we've been talking, but like, I think that we so often want to pull out that part and not that, you know, not acknowledge the fact that like a lot of our deepest hurts that we experience in our lives really come from those from familial relationships or yeah, you know what I mean? And so I think like we do need to start to acknowledge a little bit more of, of some of that more openly and more publicly. Yeah. Especially in the sense that, they're trying, it's the grandchild that's trying to stay in communication. It's the yeah. niece, it's the cousin. It's, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily like one person that's sort of an outsider, but mm -hmm. they've grown up being the outsider. I think that what that makes me think of as well is like, we tend to have, humans tend to have like all or nothing mentalities, you know, like this is the way it is and it's just going to be this way forever. Mm -hmm. And I think like, it's important to challenge some of that, right? Like maybe you have someone in your life that like can't for whatever means be in your life right now because 
you know, they're doing something they shouldn't be doing or they're not a healthy person to be around. But maybe that's not a forever thing. Maybe that's mm-hmm. like until they until they get clean or that's until they, you know, have gone to therapy or whatever that is. Like it doesn't have to be all or nothing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, so this one is very interesting. Uh, how do you handle adoption when extended family sees them as not one of your own? Oh, yeah. I get asked this question quite often, actually. Um, I think for myself, I can answer that. I'm going to answer it for myself, I guess. Um, I, the way that, I mean, I definitely, not my family in particular, but I've had people sort of make those make comments to that statement. Um, so like how you manage some of that is it kind of comes back to like, I don't have control over, <laughs> you know, what uh, someone else thinks. If they mm-hmm. want to think that that's fine, at least from my perspective. Um, I know who my family are and I know who loves me. Um, you can either, you know, be in my life or you can't or you're just not right like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try to like force my way into yours um i mean personally like i'm just kind of like well you're wrong but you know like i'm still a member of this family but uh i mean everybody's entitled i guess to their own opinions and that definitely is a, a painful thing you know like to work through especially when you're a kid and you're hearing that stuff up into being an adult but at least for myself um, where I'm at now, it's like, I was, I mean, like your opinion is your opinion. I just don't agree. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting when you talk, like, for example, everyone's opinion of everyone's sort of majority of people's definition of family is people you feel connection with. And then suddenly when it becomes to that adoption scenario, people are like, people are so against adoption. Like a lot of my mm-hmm. friends, I'm like, I would rather adopt a child and bring in someone then yeah. have my own because there's so many kids already there that mm-hmm. have that, that need spaces need. that need homes exactly yeah, absolutely and there yeah, are so I, many of my friends who disagree with it or who are like oh why don't you want to have your own kids i'm like they're still kids they're there's still- lots of kids and yeah. it's 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 an interesting thing because it's like there's lots of kids that don't end up ever getting adopted you know by the age of nine i believe the statistic is like the the likelihood of adoption is less than half it, it, go, it cuts down in half. Um, and that, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know. I think what feeds into, I don't know necessarily what feeds into the, the sort of strict lines. It might be a moral thing. It might be a, like a religious thing. Um, but yeah, it's like, I feel my personal opinion on that is like, you're, you're cutting out something that could be really good. Like this relationship yeah. that you're shutting the door on, like could be a thing that brings you so much joy and you're just like slamming, slamming the door. And for what? Um, I guess that's, that's what that makes me think of. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. I'm like, you could be missing out on so much and Mm -hmm. it's, it's so great. Um, I love having people on to sort of reiterate that as well. I think I've spoken (laughs) about adoption so many times (laughs) on this show. It's not even funny anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I love that idea and I love people to sort of share that same ideology because I'm mm-hmm. trying to convince the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will sit right there next to you and try to convince people as well because, yeah, I think it's a positive thing. Yes. Perfect. So now we're heading on to the next and very last segment of the show, which okay. is an open mic. And okay. 
I think I've spoken to you about this and we've had a discussion as to what you'll talk about, but Mm -hmm. I would love for you to spend the last few minutes or so sharing Mm -hmm. what you're, what you're working on and what you're passionate about. So yes, I'll give you the floor. All right. Thank you. So this does kind of relate to family relationships, uh, but I wanted to spend uh, some of the time that you're giving me just sharing some information on diabetes and insulin. Um, I have a five-year-old niece uh, who is a type one diabetic. She was uh, diagnosed when she was four. Um, And uh, so this topic is, is pretty meaningful for me. Um, So insulin was invented by Frederick Banting in 1921 um, when he actually extracted insulin from the pancreas of a dog. Um, There are roughly somewhere around 7 million Americans that require insulin to survive uh, today. Uh, Currently, insulin costs roughly $8 a vial to produce. Um, However, over the last 20 or so years, we've really seen manufacturers increase their prices by over 600%, which is pretty exponential. Um, Keeping in mind, right, that uh, the average diabetic uses about three vials of insulin a month. Um, So that means a 30-day supply for an insured person here in the States can range from 50 to 70 American dollars. Or if you aren't insured, that cost can range between 174 to like 360 American dollars. So um, due to inadequate insurance or no insurance, an estimated 1.3, somewhere around there, uh, million patients are forced to ration their insulin, um, meaning that they're only taking a portion of their uh, dose or they're waiting longer times between their dose. Anyway, they're not taking it the way they should be taking it. So when this happens, they're at a much higher or an increased risk of uh, DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, which can subsequently lead to death. Um, not to mention increase all the sort of mental health symptoms that go along with, um, you know, due to the sort of stress of not knowing when or how they're going to get their medicine. Um, so on March 1st uh, of 2023, uh, a pharmaceutical company called Eli Lilly announced they were reducing the cost of their insulin, um, cutting prices by 70% for both insured and uninsured, uninsured people. Um, this came uh, as a result of a lawsuit that was uh, started in California and a few other states joined um, that was essentially suing this company for price gouging insulin. Um, currently, there are no other companies that have reported any plans to reduce uh, their prices. Um, Frederick Banting is quoted as saying, insulin doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the world. Um, I just don't think people should have to go hungry to receive basic health care. So if you're interested, um, I encourage you to reach out to, pharmaceutical, uh, to other pharmaceutical companies and sort of continue to advocate for price reductions when it comes to you know, life-saving medications. So that is my, my little soapbox moment. (laughs) Well, that is, I had no idea that that was a, that was such a big, that's such a big issue. Like we don't hear about it. Mm -hmm. No matter, I don't know what, even what it is in Australia, but I, it's better. It's it's better. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty a substantial problem here in the States. Wow. Okay. That's well, I'm, I'm really glad that you got to share that and that will Mm -hmm. definitely be something that, um, we would love to keep on, like have the description down below and any place that, Mm -hmm. do you have any, is it, if you find any resources as well, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. definitely. We would love to, we would love to help that in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, well, thank you so much, Marissa, for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
Well, I'm, I'm glad. It's been a lot of fun for me as well. I get to sort of talk about my life story as if I don't do that enough on the show. <laughs> as <it is>. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that we'll be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And if there's a way that audience members would like to get in contact with you, is mm-hmm. there a way that they are able to? Yeah, um, you can contact me via my university email here on campus. Um, that would be a perfect way to contact me. Um, uh, I guess we can either, I can share that with you guys, um, pass that along, um, and you can post that if you'd like to. Perfect. I would definitely post it down in the description and it's easier access for everyone. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much guys for listening. And I, you know, you know, the drill, like, and subscribe, follow up for more episodes that to come and definitely have, if you have some comments or some questions down below, um, definitely write that and can share it with Marissa as well. And, Mm-hmm. Um, we could send her over to reply or we can, mm-hmm. uh, she can send us an answer. So yeah, definitely do that and definitely try to share this around. Cause I think it's, it's just important to share the familial experiences, but also the insulin issue and what we talked about at the end. So mm-hmm. yes, definitely share it around. So yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and I will see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.